Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. If you're here this morning and have a Bible with you, you may find your way to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17. If you do not have a Bible, we have them here for you. Be glad to give you one, borrow you one, whatever. If you know somebody who needs one, please take it. They're on the table back there. Exodus chapter 17 this morning. As we have journeyed through Exodus, 17 chapters in this morning, it's been a year. I started preaching through Exodus uh, just after Easter. I think it was, maybe it was May 1st uh, last year. So we've been journeying slowly, but really, Pebri could say, Pastor, that's a really long time. If you've been paying attention, We're trying to follow the contour of Scripture, the rise and fall of what the Scripture is doing. Instead of plowing through major pieces of text, we're looking very closely at what applies to the people of God, to people that are not the people of God, and and soaking the Scripture for all that it is worth in our life. We have been focusing all of our way through Exodus on this theme. God delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. This is the accomplishment of, of the work of God. This is what God does for us. The Bible is very clear. He does not save us because he needs us. God is not able to be served by human hands. He has no need of being served. Thank you, brother, for praying this morning. God is self-reliant. He is self-sufficient. He is self-existent and in no need of anything from us. Yet, he delights in the praise of his people. How beautiful. Has nothing, has no need for anything from us, yet delights in us and is glorified by us. Let that settle for a minute. God is glorified by us. Here at the village, we are about the glory of God and the advance of the gospel. One of the means that we seek to glorify God is gathering every Sunday. God delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. They are on their way As we pick up in Exodus 17, it's been a few weeks since we've been around this text, Exodus. As we pick this up, they are traveling from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. We don't know exactly where they are. They're somewhere, uh, one commentator I shared a few weeks ago, they're somewhere between bondage and the promised land. They're just on a journey. God is leading them to the place of rest. They have faced thirst. They have faced hunger. And each time, God has provided them while testing their obedience to him. We pick up this morning in Exodus chapter 17. Would you read along with me? Exodus 17, just the first seven verses. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? And why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the Lord, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, 
and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Father, I ask as we approach your word, I know that I'm not able in my flesh to communicate anything from your word and have it do any good. So I pray, God, by the power of your spirit that you would speak to me and through me to those gathered here this morning. Father, that we would all receive from you what your word holds for us, that we would, Father, know you in a greater way today through the teaching of your word. Father, I pray I pray that through the teaching of your word, you would humble sinners to repentance and salvation. I pray, Father, that your word would promote holiness among your people. And I pray that Christ the Savior would be exalted. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I hope to make clear from this passage, seven short verses, I hope to make clear the connection between being satisfied in God and being satisfied in bad circumstances. There's a clear link between the two. Our satisfaction in God will lead to satisfaction in bad circumstances, circumstances where we are tempted to be dissatisfied in life, perhaps legitimate circumstances like being out of water in the middle of the desert. Think of bad circumstances in your life. Think of difficult things you have faced. For those in the room like, I haven't faced anything difficult. Good. You're on a good plane right now to understand that your satisfaction in God right now will help you be satisfied through bad circumstances. You will notice that I am not saying satisfied by bad circumstances. Why? Because they're bad circumstances. We don't want to go through them. They're not fun. They're not pleasing. They're we want them gone, but to be satisfied through them. May our satisfaction in God lead us to being satisfied in bad circumstances. I, uh, how many people, uh, you don't have to show me your hands, how many people, we read this passage and you thought to yourself, water from the rock, man, if I was a preacher, this is a slam dunk of a passage from the Bible, like the, wa- the rock is struck and water flows and that is an absolute picture of Jesus, you would not be wrong. You would be correct that the water being struck is a picture of Jesus. However, I want us to understand something that that the whole of the Bible shows us about this text. This situation right here that the Israelites are facing is talked about more than two or three times throughout the rest of Scripture. There are a lot of things that happened to ancient Israel that are talked about later in Scripture. This one comes with a warning. You can find it in Psalm 78, and you can find it in Psalm 95, and you can find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 for three examples. Psalm 78 and Psalm 95 warn us to not be like Israel is here. So now we have this frame of mind, this, this thought that we can approach the scripture with, that we may be satisfied in God and therefore be satisfied through our bad circumstances, yet we're going to now study Israel being unsatisfied in God because of their bad circumstances, and the Bible tells us 
Do not be like them. That is the trajectory now of this sermon this morning, whatever it is, thoughts that I've compiled here to share with you. And what are they like? Psalm 78 warns, written by Asaph hundreds of years after, after Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness. Psalm 78, Asaph describes the Israelites as stubborn and rebellious. Their heart was not steadfast and their spirit was not faithful to God. Don't be like that. Psalm 95 They believe written by David. We just heard 94 this morning. We'll hear 95, the whole thing next week. Psalm 95, verses 8 and 9. Hard-hearted, testing God. Psalm 95 reveals that what is happening here in Exodus chapter 17 is the nation of Israel putting God on trial. Could you imagine? Uh, We the people come against God. Imagine a courtroom saying that's what's happening here. Hard-hearted, testing God. They put him on trial. Psalm 95 verse 9 says, Though they had seen the work of God. Exodus chapter 17 verse 1. According to the command of God, they set out. When we last saw them, they had moved from the Red Sea. They came to Elam. They rested. God provided uh, the manna that flake-like substance, flower-like substance, where they made bread from it and they were fed because they had no food. The quail fell, they had meat, they found water. They've moved on from that at the command of the Lord. It says there in verse, seven, uh, verse 1 of chapter 17, according to the command of the Lord, they set out by stages. We'll understand later as we get into their history that when Israel moves, there's an order to how they move. Like, this is like, um, I know not everybody has a large family, but I do, and sometimes you just got to crack the whip on them, and it's like, all right, just age order, right? That type of a thing, okay? Move on by stages, a set movement pattern. They move, God moves them on from the wilderness of Sin to Rephidim. I looked on a map. I couldn't find it. Maybe your maps are better than mine. I couldn't find this place. However, Rephidim is a name, and it's a name that means rests or stays, or resting place. So they didn't just come to any place. They came to a place named for finding rest. Could you imagine? It may be hard. Yesterday was hot. It wasn't the the middle of summer, though. Um, I'm trying to help us think of an illustration. Just imagine... You're on a drive, okay, family vacation, and you're traveling, and you're, you got to stop and go to the bathroom, and you think, I'm going to get something to eat while I'm there as well. I'm going to stop at this oasis, if you will. It's a rest area, after all. So you off the highway, and you pull in, you find your spot, and you go in, and use the restroom, you come out, and you find that there are no vending machines there. How many people? Uh-huh. How many people ever got to a rest stop, and you're like, somebody better get some water here quickly, right? This has happened to many. I mean, you're nodding your heads. It's happened to me. Why is there no water here? Imagine coming to a place of rest and not finding what will lead to your rest. Now I have to stop again. Now I'm further irritated instead of more restful. The scene that unfolds here is almost identical to what we saw in Exodus 15. Israel left the Red Sea. They come to Marah, except there they did find water but it was bad water. I'm not sure which is worse, finding bad water 
or finding no water. I'm going to side with finding no water. That's what I'm going to do. God sweetened the water at Marah, and they drank. He moves them on, and they find more water. Here they come to this place named for resting, and they find no water. I thought about a time in the desert. I took a hike with some guys, and we all had a bottle of water. And we took a long hike, and that bottle of water wore out quick. And we couldn't get to more drink fast enough. The whole excursion, wow, look at that, look at that, look at that. This is all pointless. I need to drink or I might just lay down and die. Just that exasperated. Imagine we need to try and put ourselves in the frame of mind of traveling through a barren desert and coming to a place of rest and finding that there is nothing to satisfy you or to help you feel rested. Maybe like your life this morning that you walked in here with. I came in here this morning and I feel as though my life is a barren desert and I cannot find any rest. Nothing is here to satisfy me. And so the people of Israel, despite all that they have encountered so far, they step out onto really thin ice here with God. And I hope to show you through this passage. They do three things. We are told not to be like them, and they do three things that we must not do. What do they do? One, they demand of God. Two, they doubt the goodness of God. And three, they doubt the presence of God. Now, we're not to be like them, so we're not to demand of God. We're not to doubt the goodness of God. We're not to doubt the presence of God. They demand of God. Look in verse 2. Came to Rephidim, there's no water. Verse 2, the people quarreled. Therefore, because there was no water, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water. They make a demand. They quarrel with Moses. Previously, they've only grumbled. Now, there's an escalation in their dissatisfaction with Moses, but we know ultimately with God. And we're going to see that come out in the text as we go this morning. They have grumbled against Moses. Now they quarrel against Moses. Moses names the place because of their quarreling. The King James here uses these words. The people did chide. I only wrote it down because it's such an old way of speaking. Whoever thought about saying that? Like yesterday when my kids were hungry, they didn't chide. You know what they did? They complained. That's what's happening here. They're making their complaint. The New King James says they contended with. Christian Standard Bible says they complained to. The New Living Translation says they complained against. Do you get the picture? There's no water here. God, what's wrong with you? Right? Because we can't help but assume that when something bad happens to us, it's because something is wrong with somebody else. Their problem visibly with Moses, but we can see plainly through all of Exodus, it's God that is leading them. It is God they have a problem with. They're upset. There's no water. They go to Moses as their visible leader, ultimately making their complaint to God. Give us water. How many of you ever walked into the presence of God and made a demand of God. I mean, let's be brutally honest. Plenty of us have done it. God, do. God, give. God, this. God, that. We make demands all the time, and we should be very careful, especially because the Bible says, do not be like them. Notice that the people here do not rely on asking God for water. 
Oh, Father, who has led us into the middle of this barren desert where there is no water? You have provided so wondrously for us in the past. You have given us food when we had none. You brought us out of Egypt. God, we appeal to you. We pray to you. We ask of you, Father, would you give us water to drink? No, give us water to drink. Now, Hebrews 4.16 tells us that we can come confidently before God. I'm going to tell you right now, there ain't anything more confident than saying, give us water. That's confidence. But you know what the confidence is in? It's in themselves. We have a right to come before God and demand of him, give us water. Hebrews says we can go confidently, but we are going confidently because of who God is. James tells us we are to come humbly before God. Philippians chapter 4 tells us that we are to not be anxious in anything. Imagine the people of Israel journeying through a barren desert, coming to this place of rest. They stop and there's no water. How many of you are anxious when all of a sudden you realize the rest area doesn't have a Coca-Cola vending machine? What am I going to do? The anxiety builds. They become anxious. And what happens when anxiety starts to take over, all of a sudden we start to be and think irrationally. Do not be anxious in anything, Philippians says, but in all things, by prayer, make your requests known to God. Father, we have a desperate need. We are desperate for water. Our good Father. They do not do that. Instead, they demand of God. Listen, if you want to write down something to apply to your life, don't demand of God. Approach him, confident in who he is, And Hebrews says, and you will find grace and help in time of need. Israel easily could have gone to God, could have pled their case before him, and could have found grace and help in time of need, but they make a demand instead, revealing their heart. People are already thinking now, if you're thinking about the text, but wait a second, they do that and they still get their water. Right. Let's follow it out. Exodus 17, 3 First, they demand of God, give us water in verse 2. Moses says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? He just turns it right back on them. Verse 3, look it. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? First, they demand of God. Their demand leads what? To doubting the goodness of God of God. They doubt the goodness of God. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? I was reading different translations this passage, different English translations of the Bible, and the New Living, I really like Moses' response. If you have a New Living, you're you're reading these words along with me in verse 3. Moses says to them, quiet. Maybe it's the end of verse 2. Quiet. Why are you complaining against me? And why are you testing the Lord. It's as if Moses can sense his frustration. Did I bring the plagues that brought our freedom out of Egypt? Did I divide the sea and cause it to be dry on which we crossed into safety from Egypt? Did I sweeten the water that was bitter? Did I make the manna fall on the ground? Did I give the quail? Did I lead us to this place? No, the Lord goes before us. 
He cuts right through them, and I love that we've examined the Bible is strange about Moses. He's humble, and at times he appears weak, but at other times he appears very strong. And here, I liked that New Living Translation, quiet, why are you testing the Lord? The God of our fathers has gone before us. Moses could have said here, look at that cloud right there. We are following that cloud. God is leading us through this wilderness. I've not done any of these things to you. God is leading us. Why? We examined several weeks ago. When God leads us to hard places, it is for us to drill down into our faith and to obey him in a greater way, not to throw our hands up and just walk away from our faith and disobey. The journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai took three months. You can see it. We're going to get there eventually, maybe next couple weeks or so. Exodus chapter 19 says, on the third new moon after the people left Egypt, they came to Mount Sinai. Three months. It took them three months to leave Egypt, cross the sea, travel the desert, and get to Mount Sinai. In those three months, I wrote this down. They were delivered from Egypt, Exodus 12 and 13. They crossed the Red Sea, Exodus 14. They had bitter water made sweet in Exodus 15. They were given food in 16. God has proven himself over and over and over and over. And here they come and there's no water and they throw their hands up and say, why did you bring us up out of Egypt in the first place? In less than three months. How long has it been? A month and a half? We don't know. Three months time from Egypt to Sinai and all that they've seen, they're here with no water and they're like, why are we even here? What's the purpose? What's the point? Why did you even deliver us? They doubt the goodness of God. God has proven himself over and over. Look what they ask. To kill us? Did you do all that just to kill us? What, are we a joke? Is this, do we just exist for you to have fun? What? Doesn't this follow into the logic of the world? Think about the things you've heard people in the world say. You crooked, twisted God. How can you believe in a God that's so crooked that he would do that stuff to people, make life so bad? If there's a good God in heaven, why do all these bad things happen, right? We've asked the same question, haven't we? God has proven himself over and over. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us? I wrote these examples down. Exodus 3.8, God saying, to bring them to a good place. Those are God's words to Moses, to his people. I've come to deliver you, to bring you to a good place. Exodus 6, verse 7. I've come to deliver you. I've brought you up out of Egypt to be my people. God's word to his people, Israel and Egypt, I'm delivering you. I've brought you up out of Egypt to be mine. To be my people that I may be your God. Exodus 6, verse 8, to bring them into the land that he swore to their fathers. God makes promises all throughout his word. And do you know what God never does? God never breaks his promise. I will give to your descendants this land. And so God has delivered them to give them the land he swore to their fathers. Why? For a possession. It's yours. Rest. I started thinking about this as it relates to our own life. God has delivered many in the room from sin. We've been set free from the burden and bond of sin. And why? And why did God deliver us from sin? So that we could have the best job, the best house, the greatest family, the most finances, the best food, the best vehicles. What do all those things do? They serve this life. 
So did God deliver us so that we could just have our best life right now? Holy headline from major preaching teachers in the world who shouldn't open the Bible with people on a Sunday morning. Maybe those things will happen for you. God delivers you from sin to bring you to a good place. God delivers you from sin to make you his people. God delivers you from sin to give you a possession, the Bible says, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ for eternity. That's what God promises to his people. He promises it here to the nation of Israel. His promises through Christ are the same to those who through faith believe in Jesus right now. More than 10 times across Exodus, God delivered his people to serve and worship him. And we already examined, he doesn't need that. He desires it. He wants that. But something must happen and change in us to bring us into his presence to be able to do that. We must be holy because God is holy and we are sinful. And so Christ comes to us. They doubt the goodness of God. Why did you bring us up out of the land of Egypt? Not to make their life miserable. Not to make them a laughingstock to the nations. How many times in our Christian life? How many times? How miserable is a Christian? Let's be honest. How often is the Christian life miserable? We suffer. Why? Why are we suffering? Why are we sojourning in this life, which we know, which the world knows, is short and finite? And we suffer through it. Why? Because God has delivered us. But God did not deliver us so that we may be miserable through this life though we are miserable in this life. God did not deliver us to make us a laughingstock to people around us. Hey, Easter dinner, give me at noon. I might not make it. My preacher sometimes talks way too long, and so I don't know if I'm going to make it on time for lunch or not. Right? That's the safe answer. Why? Because what you don't want to say is, listen, I'm going to church on Easter Sunday just like I do on every Sunday. And we open the Bible, and there's no telling how long we're going to sit there and listen to what God has to say to us. I'll see you when I see you. None of you gave that answer to anybody last week. Why? Because somewhere deep inside of you, you didn't want to feel bad about talking bad about me, and you didn't want somebody to laugh at you for spending too much time at church. We don't want to be laughed at. None of us want to be laughed at. I mean, I spent a lot of my younger years being laughed at in school. I'm okay with it. You can talk bad about me, laugh at me. I don't really care. I'll say stuff to make you laugh at me. I don't care. How many of you want to be laughed at tomorrow morning because of Jesus Christ? How many of you are so willing to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for you, his goodness to you, that you are willing to be mocked for it? None of us. I'm miserable and I'm laughed at. And what do those thoughts lead to? Now I'm going to start doubting the goodness of God. Because if God was so good, he wouldn't make my life miserable. And he wouldn't cause me to be laughed at. No, well, you're inventing Christianity that's not from the Bible. I'm sorry. 
Don't doubt the goodness of God. He has not saved you. He has not delivered you to make your life miserable, to make you a joke. He's delivered you. He saved you to worship him. He saved you to bring you into his presence where you are not able to go on your own without his work. Hard times will likely come. Bad things will likely happen. But God redeemed you to bring you into his presence, to a good place, to a possession, to serve him. He's promised it. They demand of God, they doubt the goodness of God, and they doubt the presence of God. Look at the end of this section, verse 7. Moses named the place Massa and Meribah, words that mean testing, words that mean quarreling, contentious, complaining people. Verse 7 says, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because, Moses writing to us, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? This one for me takes the cake. How many of us make demands of God? We doubt the goodness of God, but are you bold enough to doubt the presence of God? Because this is bold. Is God among us or not through all that we have seen? We can't, I don't have time to unpack it all. We've been studying Exodus for a year. All that we have seen, Israel has absolutely zero reason to doubt presence of God. None. They have no reason to doubt the presence of God, but here we are. Is God among us or not? How often do we ask it? Oh, that's really bold, right? But how often do we do it? How often when things go south do we doubt that God's not with us? What happened to the disciples in the boat? The story's right there in the Bible. They're in the boat, the water's coming down, the floods and the winds and the rain and all that stuff, and they're crying out, save us, we're gonna die! Wake him up, he doesn't care, he's asleep in the front of the boat. He's up on the mountain. He doesn't care about us. If he cared about us, he'd do something about our bad circumstance, wouldn't he? How often, when things don't go our way, when things are less than desirable, instead of drilling down into the promises of God, do we wonder if God even cares? Oh, forgive us. Instead of remembering all that God is and all that God has been for them here, unsatisfied with their circumstance, Israel is testing the Lord by demanding of him, by doubting his goodness, and by doubting his presence. They have put him on trial. Lord God Almighty, please take the witness stand. We have charges to bring against you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Yet when we find ourselves in them, it becomes a little more scary. Moses exasperated, verses 4 through 6. He is at his end, I feel. Moses is the only one who calls out to God, and I'm not sure whether he called out to God in a good or right way or what, but he's like, what am I going to do about these people? They're ready to kill me. What am I going to do? Ready to stone me. He's got good reason to fear for his life. They're unsatisfied, and our unsatisfaction, our dissatisfaction with bad circumstances because we're not satisfied in God will lead us to irrational thought. Irrational thought will lead you to irrational action. Irrational thought and action is going to lead you to sin because it is utterly irrational for us to say, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. I'm going to take a deep breath. This circumstance is really, really awful, but I am going in it to cling to the promises of God, and I'm not going to let go. It's okay, even if it's not, it is. Led to irrational thought 
they're going to kill Moses. They're forgetting that Moses took that staff and struck the Nile, brought the plagues. God used him to bring those plagues upon. What did God say at, at the Red Sea? They can't get across the Red Sea. And God says, lift up that staff in your hand. So Moses is like, okay. Lifts his hand and what happens? The sea parts and they walk through on dry ground. And here Moses is like, they're going to kill me. They've watched all of this happen and they're going to kill me. It's okay. Won't be the first guy in Israel's history that will do awesome things in their sight and they'll kill him. It's okay. But the next person that comes and the next person that does the biggest and greatest things that ever could be done among humanity, the Lord Jesus Christ, will die. And he will do the greatest thing he's ever done. We've talked as we've journeyed through Exodus. Moses is a picture of something greater. And it's Jesus. Here, when Moses cries out to God, I am struck and overwhelmed by the kindness of God in this moment. They demand, they doubt his goodness, They doubt his presence. Later in their history, God is literally going to say, Moses, get out of the way that I can kill them all. Move aside, Moses. I'm all done with this people. What does he do here? He could do it right here. What does he do here? Take that staff in your hand. Can you imagine while Moses felt when God said, take that staff in your hand? That staff has done nothing but shred and destroy the nation of Egypt. And now Moses says, take that staff in your hand. Oh, boy. What? And take some of the elders with you. Why? Oh, man. Take, the, take some elders with you. This sounds an awful lot like take that staff in your hand and go to Pharaoh. Lord, I don't know. Um, okay, I got the staff. I got the elders. What does God say? I'm going to judge these people for their doubt and their demands on me after all that I have done. Nope, nope. God, here, man. Go with the elders on ahead of the people. Stand on the rock and I will stand before you. Take the staff and strike the rock and water will flow. Same staff that brought the judgment of God and here could still bring his judgment and in a sense does bring satisfaction for his people. He gives them water to drink. Why? Because he has delivered them for his own possession. He has redeemed them to be with him. God is good. God does not intend bad for his people. The same staff that brought the judgment of God here now brings the blessing of God. They're weak, needy, demanding, doubting, dissatisfied. Psalm 114 verse 8 says, he turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring. Psalm 105 verse 41, he opened the rock And water flowed through the desert like a river. Maybe I've quoted that to you before. God is a God who makes rivers in the desert. That's where it comes from. You ever wonder where I've said that? Where do you get that from, Pastor? God makes rivers in the desert. Right here. The Bible says it flowed. Circumstances ever been so bad that you make demands of God and doubt his goodness? Doubt his presence? Put him on trial? Paul said that everything that happened to them serves for us as an example. That we may not do. 1 Corinthians 10, he says, some of them put Christ to the test. Some of them were destroyed by serpents. Don't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed. Testing God puts us on thin ice and how often do we do it? All throughout the Old Testament, we do see things that look like Christ, remind us of Christ. Sometimes they're hard to understand. This time, they are not. In their moment, weak, Desperate, needy, demanding, doubting, the rock is struck and water flows. 
and God provided for them. And here we are, weak, needy, desperate, demanding, doubting, and what happened? The Lord God, Isaiah says, was pleased to what? Crush the Lord Jesus. Quick survey, John 4, 13, Jesus said, whoever drinks mere water will thirst again. Listen, if you're here today and you're drinking the world's drink, you're going to be thirsty. If you are drinking what the world has to offer, you will be thirsty again. In John 4, 14, Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. We heard it in the scripture reading this morning. And streams of living water will well up inside. Christ said, come to me and drink. I am the living water. Fascinating peace at the crucifixion that maybe we miss, maybe we don't, maybe we don't understand. In John 19, verse 34, when the thieves had died, they broke their legs because crucifixion is death by suffocation. It's terrible. And they would break their legs because as long as they could push themselves up, they could draw a breath and sustain life and maybe they wouldn't die. And so to make sure that they died, they would come along with clubs and they would break the legs of people on the cross so that their legs would give out and they would bear the whole weight of themselves. That's a picture for us to think about. They would bear the entire weight of themselves and suffocate and die. The Bible says that they came to break the legs of Jesus Christ, but he was already dead. I don't know how many of you have ever thought about this. You know why? Because Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And so what happens? The centurion in John chapter 19 takes a spear and thrusts it into the side of Jesus. And the scripture tells us John is the only one who records it. And do you know why John's word is so good? Because he stood there and watched it happen. And blood and water poured out of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Showing us that in his death, by his blood, life flows. Springs of living water. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, our fathers in the desert drank one spiritual drink. There is only one spiritual drink to drink. And they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Israel doubted the goodness of God, the presence of God. They made demands of God. And God on trial by them judges himself. And guess what? He's faithful. Put me on trial. What does Corinthians say? Let every man be proved a liar, and God will be true. Being fully satisfied in all that God is for us in Jesus will help us weather the worst circumstances. I give you these four considerations, and we'll observe the Lord's Supper. Job, in Job chapter 1, verse 20, all of his children die, all of his stuff is stolen. And the Bible says in Job chapter 1, verse 20, that he fell and he worshipped. And how many times have we read that and wondered how in the world could Job fall and worship at a time like that? Do you know what the answer is? He was fully satisfied in all that God was for him. The apostles in Acts chapter 5 are beaten for their testimony. Everybody said, that wasn't me. I haven't been beaten yet. Hebrews says to you, you haven't resisted the devil to the point of shedding your blood. The apostles in Acts 5 are beaten for their testimony. When they are released, you know what they do? The Bible says they go out rejoicing. Why? Because they were fully satisfied in all that God was for them. Paul and Silas in Acts 16, beaten and thrown in prison. They praise God. Why? 
in prison, beaten and thrown in prison, not cared for because the jailer does that when they come out. Why are they praising God in prison in the middle of the night? Because they were fully satisfied with God in the midst of their circumstance. After all they've experienced, Israel here is unhappy because they are not yet fully satisfied in God. And how often do we turn to different things than God? How often are we unsatisfied with how things in life go? How satisfied are you in all that God is for you through Jesus right now? Pastor, I'd be a whole lot more satisfied in God right now if there was AC in this room. No doubt, but there's not. I sure would be a whole lot more satisfied if. I sure would be more satisfied when. I sure would be more satisfied how. No, are you satisfied with the fact that Christ is your peace with God? Are you satisfied with the fact that Christ is the atonement for your sin? Are you satisfied with the fact that at the end of this miserable, wretched life, that no matter how good it is, holds nothing good, there is eternity with Christ waiting for you? That is fully satisfied in God, despite what may be going on around you. We'll suffer many things. Moses struck the rock and water flowed. Israel drank. God was pleased to crush the Lord Jesus Christ. And blood and water flowed. Have you trusted in him? How? Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Father, forgive me. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of doubting you. Forgive me of the demands I make against you. I doubt your goodness. I doubt your presence. Oh God, forgive me. Save me. The Bible says, call on the name of the Lord and be saved. I'm going to pray. And then this table will be open for those to come and observe the Lord's Supper. We'll, we'll gather the elements. We'll all take communion together. But first, let me pray for you. Father, we come to you a week broken people, desperate for something to wet our thirst that we may not thirst again. Father, I pray, I pray that through the preaching of your word today, we would see how to approach you, not in demand, but humbly. Father, I pray that through all the good things that we have seen you have done for us, we would not doubt your goodness, for you are good pray, Father, that we would not doubt your presence, for you are here. You are near. Weak, poor, and brokenhearted, and your word says you are near to the brokenhearted. We praise you. Father, I pray for those in this room today, those who have not, through faith, professed Jesus as Lord and have been saved by your grace. Oh, God, save them. May they drink of the living water that is Jesus Christ, and may they find their full satisfaction in all that you are. Father, for those in the room faithful in Jesus, hanging all of their hope and all of their future on the promises you have made and the promises you give through the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray, Father, that we would find our full satisfaction not in the good things of this life. Father, and that we would not be so consumed in bad circumstance as to be unsatisfied. I pray, God, that in all things, whether good or bad, we would find our satisfaction in all of who you are to us, for us, through Jesus. For you are good and worthy to be praised. We thank you, God, for the supper that we are about to partake in and all that it means for those who through faith are saved by grace. God, we honor you we ask that you would save and build your church in Christ's name. Amen.
Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's Word.